1: This is the Tom Hartman Program.
2: And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. It's a a beautiful day here in Oregon. Hope your day is well. Right now, Richard Clark is on the line with us. He's a national security and crisis management expert, former chief counterterrorism advisor to the National Security Council in the Clinton administration the person that President Clinton tasked with building our stockpile. He's also the author of nine books, including his latest, The Fifth Domain, his website, Richard Clark, with an E at the end, dot net. Richard Clark is his Twitter handle. Uh, Mr. Clark, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we talked. So glad to have you with us. In your book, Warnings, you talked about the need to constantly scan the horizon looking for threats. How have the Clinton and Obama administrations behaved relative to looking at threats compared to the Bush and Trump administrations?
3: Well, Tom, it's good to be with you again. The book Warnings was about exactly this. It's got the 12 case studies of places where occasions where experts said there was something terrible coming, and they were data-driven, they had evidence, and they went to higher-ups, they went to government officials, and they were ignored. And one of the chapters in the book is about pandemic disease. And we demonstrate there that there was a lot of evidence. This is a book we wrote four years ago. There was going to be a major pandemic global disease and that the government wasn't ready for it uh, and that people have been warning about it for years. The Clinton administration, as you point out, was afraid that this might happen and developed a the first ever national uh, medical emergency stockpile which uh, the Obama administration then used to crush Ebola in Africa before it could spread here unfortunately the the Obama administration when they tried to refill the national stockpile of medical equipment the Republicans in the Congress blocked them and so uh, when Trump turned to it this time it wasn't robust but Tom the point is the trump administration and the president himself were told about this coming in january and that's when they could have acted to refill the national military national medical stockpile and to do other things to get the testing kits ready and whatnot and the evidence suggests they were warned in january and in february and did nothing
2: yeah well let me take it back from that this is from abc news and I'll just quote a couple of sentences from this report. I'd like to get your take on it. Since you worked in these, you know, within inside the White House, as far back as late November, this is the first sentence, as far back as late November, U.S. intelligence f- officials were warning that a contagion was sweeping through China's Wuhan region, changing the patterns of life and business and posing a threat to the population, according to four sources briefed on the secret reporting. Concerns about what is now known as a novel coronavirus were detailed in a November intelligence report by the military's National Center for Medical Intelligence. Uh, The report was the result of an analysis of wire and computer intercepts coupled with satellite images. It raised alarms that this could pose a serious threat to U.S. forces in Asia. And then they quote uh, one of the sources who helped write the report. Uh, This is somebody from the Defense Intelligence Agency, quote, analysts concluded that it could be a cataclysmic event. It was then briefed multiple times to the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Pentagon's Joint Staff, and the White House. And then they go on, you know, from that warning in November, the sources described repeated briefings throughout December for policymakers inside the National Security Council and at the White House. This is pretty dramatic stuff.
3: Yeah, and what it means is you could have gotten off this in the last year, at the end of the last year, but certainly by January. And what's the lesson from all of these facts? The lesson is that you have to have professionals in professional positions in the government. You can't have uh, amateur hour uh, with the National Security Council staff. You can't have amateur hour in the White House. Uh, You can't just pick up your friends. We do. You can't just pick up your friends and relatives and give them jobs and expect the system to work. Uh, He calls uh, the, the professional cadre the deep state, which is pejorative. But there is a professional cadre in the government, and if you take away their jobs and give give them to frankly to boobs then something will happen and in this case it's the pandemic something will happen where a trained professional will see intelligence information and know break glass sound alarm and others will not and yeah. this unfortunately is a very high price that we're paying for the president's attitude toward government and his inability to govern You know, some people like the fact that he had no government experience. Well, this is the price we're paying for having a president with no government experience.
2: Right, literally the first president in the history of the United States who was neither in the military nor served in any elected capacity. I'm curious, just a couple of other questions, and let me toss them out to you. And What are the other threats that Trump's ignoring, and are you concerned that, as he asserted back in 2012, he tweeted multiple times that Obama was going to start a war with Iran in order to get himself re-elected. Do you think that Trump might try to start a uh, so-called small war, you know, like Bush did with Iraq? to get reelected with Iran or North Korea, number one. And number two, overnight, Trump has been rage tweeting over 40 tweets, many of them focusing on Mike Flynn. What would be the implications of a pardon for Mike Flynn?
3: Well, let me talk about Iran and North Korea. A war could break out at any time with Iran or North Korea, even though the professionals, again, the military don't want that. The national security apparatus doesn't want that. We're trying to avoid those two wars, but they're both on hair triggers. And the president the other day uh, instructed the military not to be pushed around anymore by Iranian naval ships in the Gulf. Well, they haven't been. But he told them to lean forward and be more aggressive when they come into contact with the Iranian Navy. That's the way a war starts, by accident. And I wouldn't put it past this man. I wouldn't put anything past this man. certainly wouldn't put it past him to start a war to change the topic, to take attention away from it this incredible failure that he has had with the response to the pandemic it's a long way between now and november and anything is possible i certainly hope that the cooler heads will prevail but you can't you can't know when the president is the commander in chief and there aren't a lot of the filters between him and ordering us into war with regard to mike flynn you know he was always a bad choice People uh, in the Obama administration warned Trump not to pick him, that he was possibly uh, already doing things with the Russians and the Turks that were illegal. This conversation with the FBI that Trump is focusing on was a conversation after he had done all the things that triggered the FBI's interest. It's not that conversation that got him in trouble. It's the things that caused that conversation that got him in trouble. Remarkable stuff,
2: Richard Clark. His new book is The Fifth Domain. The author of nine books and uh, all of them brilliant. Richard Clark with an e dot net is his website. You can tweet him at Richard Clark. Richard, thank you so much for dropping by. It's great talking to you. Thanks,
1: Tom. And best of luck in keeping keeping the nation alerted. You're so good at it. This is the Tom Hartman program
2: back with more of the news of the day and your calls. Do you think that Trump is going to get away with this? Do you think he might start a war? So for our Tom Hartman Insider video, that's available over at TomHartman.com, Donald Trump has deployed Patriot missiles to Iraq and pointed them at Iran, has gone out of his way to threaten Iran, saying that they will pay a very heavy price. You know, if any of their proxy groups, any of the Iranian-supported militias or groups, this is basically the Shiites, the majority of the population of Iraq. In Iraq, if any of them were to attack American forces, Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo will use this as an excuse to launch a war against Iran. This is insane. The New York Times is uh, reporting military commanders, the Pentagon has ordered military commanders to plan for an escalation of American combat in Iraq, in the region, and, quote, prepare a campaign to destroy an Iranian-backed militia group that has threatened more attacks against American troops. You know, we crippled their country with sanctions, and now we're threatening a war so that Trump can get reelected? There's a video about it over at TomHartman.com. Speaking of uh, the news of the day and the coronavirus, and now this new report out that's, you know, rather startling, suggesting that people in their 30s and 40s are not getting the coronavirus in their lungs. Instead, it appears that one of the major parts of the body that this virus is attacking is called the endothelium. It's like a, it's kind of like a saran wrap-like internal lining you know, the, inside the blood vessels, inside the arteries and veins. And the endothelium appears to be getting inflamed, and that inflammation is causing dysregulation of blood clotting and fibrin formation. And so as a consequence, people are getting blood clots. In fact, it's so bad, you know, when they try to draw blood from COVID-19 patients, it clots in the tube, it clots in the hoses. When they try to run them on kidney dialysis machines, it clots everything up. This is something that we're just becoming familiar with now. But the bottom line is that there's probably thousands and perhaps as many as 10,000, if you look at the number of deaths in the United States that are above the normal seasonal average, at least an additional 10,000 deaths of people who died of heart attacks or strokes that were never attributed to COVID-19. Which means that the 58,220 people who died during the 20 years from 1955 to 1975 of the Vietnam War, have now been surpassed. Donald Trump has killed more Americans than did the entire Vietnam War and all the presidents associated with it. And I say that very intentionally. Donald Trump killed them because had Donald Trump responded to this when China first told us, which was in December of last year, when China told the world, or even a week later, when the, when the World Health Organization in China released the entire genome, or two weeks later, when the World Health Organization um, said, here's a, here's a test, and you can buy these test kits out of this company in Germany, and the WHO started shipping them for free to 60 different countries, had Trump responded at all back then? Instead of just lying through his teeth about the press, the, you know, the uh, security briefings, he'd been getting all the way back to November. In November, We were telling Israel, look out, this virus is coming. If it infects the Middle East widely, you're going to have a crisis. If Trump had just not lied to us about that stuff, many of these people would not be dead. You know, we're four and a half percent of the world's population. We have fully one quarter of the world's deaths. And we've got officially over a million cases in the United States. And we have crappy testing here. We've only tested, we've only administered 5 million tests in a country of 330 million people. You know, and on top of that, you got a lot of people like healthcare workers, 9,000 healthcare workers have gotten sick from this thing, and some of them have died. So I think it's fair to say that the blood of these people, the deaths of these people are on Donald Trump's hands. And to emphasize that point, consider this. This is from the BBC, the headline, coronavirus, quote, currently eliminated, end quote, in New Zealand. New Zealand's a country of 5 million people. Australia is a country of, I believe, 20 million, maybe 30 million. Australia is on path to do this. They recorded just 16 new cases, no deaths in Australia on Sunday, But New Zealand, here it is. New Zealand says it has stopped community transmission of COVID-19, effectively eliminating the virus. With new cases in single figures for several days, they had one case on Sunday. New Zealand, one new case. Prime Minister Jacinda Aydhern said the virus was, quote, currently eliminated. Now, they're still keeping the country relatively locked down. The entire country, for the entire period of time, and by the way, they're closer to Asia than we are, has reported fewer than 1,500 confirmed or probable cases and 19 deaths. Why? Because they immediately responded. They immediately put into place testing and contact tracing, and they locked down their economy. They are now starting to open their economy because, hey, nobody's got it here anymore. Very, very few people do, you know, so they're moving ahead. Meanwhile, we're learning this latest economic rescue package, the one that Republicans forced Democrats to go back to Congress last week for. And you know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to find out how many of those members of Congress are now sick with coronavirus as a consequence of these political games the Republicans are playing. But the headline over at the New York Times by Jesse Drucker, the tax break bonanza inside the economic package. I'm just quoting from the New York Times. The federal government has given away $174 billion in tax breaks, overwhelmingly to rich individuals and large companies. None specifically target businesses or individuals harmed by the coronavirus. Barely two years after congressional Republicans and President Trump lavished America's wealthiest families and countries with a series of lucrative tax cuts, those same beneficiaries are now receiving a second helping. You get this? And then, you know, Donald Trump is reopening the country, right? Including, starting out at the very beginning, gyms. Well, this is a guy who doesn't care about physical fitness. Why gyms? Well, it turns out two owners of fitness chains were among the 16 executives on a coronavirus-related call with Trump the day before his reopening plans were announced. And working on the issues actively is Jim Worthington, a fitness center owner, board member of an industry trade group, and founder of the People for Trump PAC. And Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew Giuliani, is working on behalf of Jim's in the White House Office of Public Liaison. Isn't that sweet? So now you, too, can go get sweaty and get coronavirus. Thank you, Donald.
1: This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom
2: Hartman Book Club is Michael Lewis's new book, The Fifth Risk. And this is from the prologue which is titled Lost in Transition. Chris Christie noticed a piece in the New York Times. That's how it all started. The New Jersey governor had dropped out of the presidential race in February 2016 and thrown what support he had behind Donald Trump. In late April, he saw the article. It described meetings between representatives of the remaining candidates still in the race, Trump, John Kasich, Ted Cruz, Hillary Clinton, and Bernie Sanders, and the Obama White House. Anybody who still had any kind of shot at becoming president of the United States apparently needed to start preparing to run the federal government. The guy Trump sent to the meeting was, in Christie's estimations, comically underqualified. Christie called up Trump's campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, to ask why this critical job hadn't been handed to someone who actually knew something about government. Lewandowski said, we don't have anyone. Christie volunteered himself for the job, head of the Donald Trump presidential transition team. It's the next best thing to being president, he told friends. You get to plan the presidency. He went to see Trump about it. Trump said he didn't want a presidential transition team. Why did anyone need to plan anything before he actually became president? It's legally required, said Christie. Trump asked where the money was gonna come from to pay for the transition team. Christie explained that Trump could either pay for it himself or take it out of campaign funds. Trump didn't want to pay for it himself, and he didn't want to take it out of campaign funds either, but he agreed grudgingly that Christie could go ahead and raise a separate fund to pay for his transition team, but not too much, he said. And so Christie set out to prepare for the unlikely event that Donald Trump would one day be elected president of the United States. Not everyone in Trump's campaign was happy to see him on the job. In June, Christie received a note from Trump advisor Paul Manafort. The kid is paranoid about you, Manafort said. The kid was Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law. Back in 2005, when he was U.S. Attorney for the District of New Jersey, Christie had prosecuted and jailed Kushner's father, Charles, for tax fraud. Christie's investigation revealed in the bargain that Charles Kushner had hired a prostitute to seduce his own brother-in-law, whom he suspected of cooperating with Christie, had videotaped the sexual encounter, and sent the tape to his sister. The Kushners apparently took their grudges seriously and Christie sensed that Jared still harbored one against him. On the other hand, Trump, whom Christie considered almost a friend, couldn't have cared less. He'd invited Christie to his and Melania's wedding, and he pressed him to attend his daughter Ivanka and Jared Kushner's wedding. That would be awkward, said Christie. I'm paying for the wedding, and I don't give an ass, said Donald. Christie viewed Jared as one of those people who thinks that because he's rich, he must also be smart. Still, he had a certain cunning about him and Christie soon found himself reporting everything he did to prepare for a Trump administration to an executive committee. The committee consisted of Jared, Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, Paul Manafort, Steve Mnuchin, and Jeff Sessions. I'm kind of like the church elder who double counts the collection plate every Sunday for the pastor," said Sessions, who appeared uncomfortable with the entire situation. The elder's job became more complicated in July 2016 when Trump was formally named the Republican nominee. The transition team now moved into an office in downtown Washington, D.C. and went looking for people to occupy the top 500 jobs in the federal government. They needed to fill all of the cabinet positions, of course, but also a whole bunch of others that no one in the Trump campaign even knew existed. It's not obvious how you find the next Secretary of State, much less the next Secretary of Transportation, never mind who should sit on the Board of Trustees of the Barry Goldwater Scholarship and Excellence in Education Foundation. By August, 130 people were showing up every day and hundreds more working part-time at Trump Transition headquarters at the corner of 17th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. The transition team made lists of likely candidates for all 500 jobs, plus other lists of informed people to roll into the various federal agencies the day after the election to be briefed on whatever the federal agencies were doing. They gathered the names for these lists by traveling the country and talking to people, Republicans who had served in government, Trump's closest advisors, recent occupants of the jobs that needed filling. Then they set about investigating any candidates for glaring flaws and embarrassing secrets and conflicts of interest. At the end of each week, Christie handed over binders with lists of names of people who might do the job well to Jared and Donald and Eric and the others. They probed everything, says a senior Trump transition official, who is this person? Where did this person come from? They only ever rejected one person, Paul Manafort's secretary. The first time Donald Trump paid attention to any of this was when he read about it in the newspaper. The story revealed that Trump's very own transition team, led by New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, had raised several million dollars to pay for its own staff. The moment he saw it, Trump called Steve Bannon, the chief executive of his campaign, from his office on the 26th floor of the Trump Tower, and told him to come immediately to his residence many floors above. Bannon stepped off the elevator to find the governor of New Jersey seated on a sofa, being hollered at. Trump was apoplectic, actually yelling, you're stealing my money, you're stealing my effing money, what the f is this? Seeing Bannon, Trump turned on him and screamed, why are you letting him steal my effing money? Bannon and Christie together set out to explain to Trump federal law. It continues from there. The book is The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis.
1: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Australia unveiled a dramatic initiative, this uh, from the uh, Huffington Post, to trace new cases of the coronavirus within its borders this week, an app uh, the government officials hope 40% of the population will soon download. Um, Users are asked to provide a name or a pseudonym. This this is fascinating how this works. You, You download the app. Prime Minister Scott Morrison, in fact, uh, you know, promoting this fairly heavily. You download the app, you uh, provide a name or a pseudonym, an age range, an area code, and a phone number. And uh, every time the phone comes within five feet of another device with, with the app, the two share a digital handshake. They recognize each other by, presumably, Bluetooth. And uh, it's an encrypted handshake. It's all, the data is anonymized, essentially. But if anyone who you have been within five feet of, even if you don't know them, even if it's like, you know, walking by them in a retail store, anybody you've been within five feet of in the uh, recent past tests positive, then you are pinged to tell you that you have been exposed to the virus so that you can get tested. Because in Australia, you can just, you know, walk into any clinic and get yourself a coronavirus test. They're they're ubiquitous. They're all over the country, and it's easy to do. And they're trying to get half the population to download this test, which seems like a you know a great idea. Prime Minister Scott Boris, and there are you know concerns about privacy, right? But he says, I know this would be something that we might not do in a normal time, but this is not a normal time. They rolled this thing out three days ago. Greg Hunt, member of Parliament. You know, Australia just tweeted, we've ticked past three million registrations of the COVID Safe app. Three million in three days is a great result. And there's work to be done to protect our doctors and nurses and get us back to the life we love. And then they ask people to sign up for this. Singapore has a similar app that people are being asked to download. They're not getting as much compliance in Singapore. And, you know, perhaps because Singapore's government is a little more fascistic, than Australia is and so uh, you know people in Singapore might be concerned shall we say about this you know about uh, giving all their information to the government but the government of Singapore is already tracing people and spying on people I mean they've been doing it for a long time Uh, but in Australia this is amazing in Australia 6753 people you keep in mind we have a million infections in the United States and we have theoretically 60,000 dead when it's starting to look like those numbers are dramatically undercounted, and it's actually in the neighborhood of 100,000, which would be more, roughly, more people than have died in every war we have had since the end of World War II. So compare that with Australia. The entire country. Not, you know, Sydney or Melbourne or Perth or Keynes, or but the entire country, all of Australia, 6,700 cases, 91 people have died. No crisis for their hospitals, no public health crisis. They've got this thing under control. It's absolutely amazing. Our one-hour free podcast recaps our show, and it's available wherever fine podcasts are found. And we have the full three-hour podcast available over at TomHartman.com if you want to really support our program. And welcome back. My rant today, by the way, which we uh, posted over at BuzzFlash.com. In fact, Mark Carlin, BuzzFlash.com has an amazing op-ed about herd immunity. You know, I've been ranting for weeks now that, in my opinion, the Trump administration was listening to Matt Whitlock, the British health minister, back in the day when he was saying, we're going to pursue a herd immunity strategy. We'll just let the virus burn through the British population. And, you know, yeah, it'll kill some old people and some weak people. But after that, we'll all be immune and everything will be wonderful. Well, you know, that kind of went up in smoke when Boris Johnson got it and nearly died. But I think that Trump is continuing to do this. And you can see that. But perhaps a larger story, or not a larger story, but you know, a peripheral to this all his life, Donald Trump has been able to escape responsibility by blaming others. Whenever his dozens of businesses failed, maybe hundreds, I don't know, you know, from his, his uh, airline company to his vodka company to his steak company, he had a board game, he had cufflinks, he had all kinds of products. And every time one of these companies failed, he blamed management. He always had a business partner in these companies, and he always blamed them. When his casinos failed... He took a 44 million dollar paycheck. He had the year before taken them public. He had sold stock. His investors lost over a billion dollars, but he took 44 million bucks, put it in his own pocket and then declared bankruptcy. And who did he blame then? This was back in the 90s, the late 90s. He blamed the economy and President Clinton. Now in a desperate attempt to avoid responsibility for killing What may be 100,000 Americans right now, the New York Times today reporting that we're radically, dramatically undercounting these deaths. We've got 60,000 official deaths. We may be undercounting them by as much as 60 or probably more like 50 percent, which means that we're over 100,000 now. We'll certainly be at 100,000 by Election Day. He's trying to avoid responsibility for killing Literally, more Americans that have died in all our wars since the end of World War II. The Korean War, 30,000 dead. The Vietnam War, 50, 56 or 58,000 dead. You know, our smaller wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, another 10, 15,000 dead. You add all that up, it's 100,000 people. And that's how many Trump is going to have killed. More than every war since the end of World War II through his incompetence. And who is he trying to blame for this? The Chinese. Now, keep in mind, Australia just yesterday reported their 91st death. The entire country, 91 people dead. The entire friggin' country. You know, the deaths in South Korea flattened out at around 300. Deaths in Taiwan, around 200. Deaths in New Zealand, they're zero now. You've got countries literally all over the world who have this thing under control, or are close to having it under control, and we have four and a half percent of the world's population, and we've got a third of the world's cases and a quarter of the world's deaths. And Trump is now trying to blame China for this. He sent Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to the CIA to lead an effort through America's spy agencies to find evidence that this coronavirus started in a lab or jumped out of a lab in Wuhan, China. Now, the world scientists tell us that the genome of the virus, which is kind of like a roadmap to where it's been, show that it probably escaped from a wet market, you know, from a bat in a wet market. But Americans right now really don't care where it started, no matter how hard Trump is going to try and point to that. This deadly virus is here now among us. And Americans want our government to provide widespread infection testing and antibody testing so we can know who has it and who had it. And in that, Trump and Kushner continue to fail. So my question for you, Trump was able to walk away from blame for all of his many business failures and his bankrupt- his six bankruptcies. And now he's bankrupting America and trying and killing Americans through his incompetence and trying to blame that incompetence on China. Now, it looks to me like this time it's not going to work, but Trump is betting the farm that it will. His 40 rage tweets overnight, you know, he's, he's working himself up to, to pardon Mike Flynn. Hey, let's have a distraction. He's doing everything he can to change the subject. If you look at his rage tweets from last night, his, his, you know, 40 plus rage tweets from last night, not one referencing the fact that there are 60,000 dead Americans, 60,000 families mourning and grieving, a million infections, hundreds of thousands of families frightened and scared to death because members of their families right now are fighting this virus either at home or in the hospital. Millions more Americans scared to death that if they just go to the supermarket, they're going to die. Did Trump address any of that last night in all of his rage tweets? No. no. It's all about grievance. It's all about, you know, do nothing Democrats who are actually doing, trying to do something. This is literally the do nothing Trump administration. Relative to the coronavirus and and the economic fallout, what he's doing is as bad as or worse than what Herbert Hoover did in 1930 after the stock market crash in the fall of 1929. Herbert Hoover did literally nothing
1: for two years. Is Trump going to get away with this? You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. And do you think he might start a war
2: to distract us from it? It's what he said Obama was going to do in 2012. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash hartman. That's netsuite.com slash hartman.
1: Our book today is The Hermit King, The Dangerous Game of Kim
2: Jong-un by Chung Min Lee. This is from the first chapter, Life in Earth's Paradise. Whenever a North Korean is asked by a foreign journalist or visitor what life is like inside North Korea, the reply is that the country's citizens live in an earthly paradise for one reason, the care given to them by the Supreme Leader. He is their father and provider. They lack for nothing nor do they desire anything else. The supreme leader makes sure that they are totally happy. Just like the Heavenly Father in Christianity, it is the living head of the Kim family that makes everything possible in North Korea. This is a total lie, except for the super elites who are bound inextricably with the regime, including the creme de la creme of the party, armed forces, security agencies, and hard currency-making enterprises. The vast majority of North Koreans must fend for themselves. Life was not always like this in North Korea. While it's impossible to imagine today, North Korea had a higher GDP than South Korea until the early 1970s. In 2017, South Korea's GDP was 1.5 trillion, whereas North Korea's was 33 billion. Per capita GDP was $30,000 in South Korea, $1,300 in North Korea. Still, North Koreans are routinely told that South Korea is filled with beggars and only a tiny percentage of corrupt capitalists live well. The rest of the population ekes out the barest of livings in squalid conditions. Because the country is a stooge of the American imperialists, South Korean women are constantly raped by American soldiers, Pyongyang's propagandist claim, and the people are yearning for liberation by North Korea. Even the government-funded Russian international television network, RT, which has prided itself as a mouthpiece of the Putin regime, believes that North Korean propaganda has gone a step too far. A 2017 RT documentary called The Happiest People on Earth, North Korea, the Rulers, the People, and the Official Narrative, offers the outside world a peek into that nation. A factory manager recounts her emotions when Kim Jong-un made an on-site inspection visit in January 2016. Quote, When the great Marshal Kim Jong-un opened the windows and walked in, we beheld his sun-like image. It was like a dream, as if I was the only one who enjoyed this great honor. She continues with straight face, the entire factory and workshop filled with sunlight when the great marshal arrived. The film crew captures a scene of students studying in the famous Kim Chak University of Technology. Since most North Korean men have to spend 10 years in the Army before they can enroll at a university, male students at Kim Chak are typically in their late 20s or early 30s. One student says, Thanks to the great leader and the Marshal General's revolutionary course, our country became the strongest country in the world. With a big smile, the student goes on to say, "'All stooges who dare attack our sovereignty are our enemies.'" Each year, the nation busies itself preparing for the celebration of Kim Il-sung's birthday on April 15th, called the Day of the Sun. The film crew captured citizens gathering in a plaza to pledge their loyalty to Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. After they take their vows, first grade children goose-step to martial music and the child leading the formation raises her right arm in a 45-degree salute, just like the goose-stepping members of the armed forces. A middle school orphanage official tells the film crew that the great Marshal Kim Jong-un spent two hours visiting the school. In the entrance, you see a giant mural depicting the floor plan of the orphanage. The point where Kim began his inspection is marked with a red star and his footsteps are marked in red arrows. The entire room is devoted to pictures and relics of his visit the red and yellow blanket that kim touched and the white chair with the blue cushion he sat in are boxed in glass everything he touches is preserved as a holy remnant just as was done with anything his father or grandfather touched this is how the state wants to portray the average north korean filled with undying love for the kim family finding truth only in the teachings of kim il-sung and kim jong-il and receiving guidance in everything from the current Supreme Leader, Kim Jong-un. The truth is, every North Korean has an avatar, because how the avatar behaves can mean the difference between life and death. The avatar is for public consumption, what is shown to most friends, relatives, and co-workers. A North Korean can show his or her innermost secrets to just a handful of people, perhaps immediate family members, trustworthy relatives, and best friends who have committed a common crime like watching a South Korean movie. The dark side of North Korea, the state argues, is simply fake news conjured up by the capitalist West and enemies of the state. But right beneath the veneer of 25 million smiling North Koreans lies a darkness that fills every square meter of the DPRK. There are at least four gulags in North Korea where between 200 and 300,000 political prisoners and their families are held. Officially, the state says there are no political prisoners an Moi Shoal was a guard in Camp 22, no longer in operation, and one of the few guards who escaped to South Korea. He was trained to see prisoners not as human beings, but as animals. In fact, prisoners got smaller rations than the dogs reared by guards. Prisoners shouldn't make eye contact with instructors, recalls on. The book, The Hermit King by Chung Min Lee. Welcome back, Tom Harbin. Here with you, the uh, New York Times reporting that the total death tolls. This is a, a verbatim quote from a piece by uh, Katz, Lou, and Katz. Total death tolls, deaths in seven states that have been hit hard by the coronavirus pandemic, are nearly fifty percent higher than normal for the five weeks from March eighth through eleven, uh, April eleven, according to new death statistics from the CDC. That's nine thousand more deaths than were reported as of April 11th as official coronavirus deaths. Uh, They go on to say, if you look at the provisional deaths from all causes, death counts in New York, New Jersey, Michigan, Massachusetts, Illinois, Maryland and Colorado have sparked far above their normal levels for the period. In New York, the home of the biggest outbreak, the number of deaths over this period is more than three times the normal number. We're talking about deaths that are not considered coronavirus deaths. In New Jersey, deaths have been 172 percent of the normal number more than 5,000 additional deaths, again, not counting coronavirus. In Michigan, it's uh, the equivalent of about 2,000 deaths, 121% higher. So, you know, people are, are stroking out from coronavirus. Young people, people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. There's a big story in the Washington Post uh, earlier this week or over the weekend about that specifically. The clotting of this thing seems it just nuts. And older people, 40, 50, 60, are having heart attacks. This stuff inflames the insides of arteries and veins and thus causes strokes and causes heart attacks. And they're not being identified as coronavirus deaths. Massachusetts is actually looking into this. Charlie Baker, the uh, state's governor, has asked that this be, I mean, they've got 60,000 cases of coronavirus, 3,400 deaths. That's massive in Massachusetts. You know, they're looking at all these deaths and say, Charlie Baker is saying, People have gone back and started to do some work to try and figure out if there are cases where people presented with what could have been deemed as COVID-19 symptoms and possibly were categorized in some other way. And yes, according to the New York Times today, that's happening. Meanwhile, Florida, this is, I haven't confirmed this. I've seen it reported in two different places. It was on CNN that Florida, number one, the governor has told the coroners around the state not to list COVID as as a cause of death, just to say they're dead. Number one, you know, homicide or disease. And number two, that apparently if you die in Florida and you're not a permanent resident of Florida, you're not essentially a citizen of Florida, but you're a snowbird, you go down there for three months in the winter or you're, you were there on spring break or you're there vacationing or visiting family and you die of coronavirus, Florida apparently doesn't count you as a Florida death. DeSantis is doing everything he can to try and keep his death statistics down because he knows he's got a tsunami coming. Meanwhile, I'm on the mailing list for uh, Veritas, which is this, Project Veritas is this organization that is run by some real whack jobs. They're the ones who, James O'Keefe and his buddies, they're the ones who go out and, well, they, they took down Acorn by selectively editing video to make it look like Acorn was pimping people out and stuff. I mean, it was just, it's just obscene. So, anyhow, I just got an email from them. Today, Project Veritas is sharing with you the latest tip we followed up on by releasing conversations with the funeral home directors and their staff throughout New York City, questioning the number of deaths officially attributed to the COVID-19 pandemic. And then he lists some of the key findings from the video, and they're just bullet points. Judge calls BS on relatives COVID-19 cause of death. Funeral home. To me, all you're doing is padding the statistics, making the death rates in New York City higher than estimated. Staten Island funeral funeral director questions Mayor de Blasio's role and ads, I think it's political. Brooklyn funeral director. They're padding the numbers. Medical examiner's too busy to investigate. Brooklyn funeral director. 40-year-old died at home with no symptoms other than fever, was toe-tagged as COVID-19. In other words, what the right wing is saying right now, what James O'Keefe and his buddies are saying is that. There aren't as many dead people as you think. Those official numbers for COVID deaths are wrong because they're just making this stuff up to make Trump look bad. Well, how does that account for the fact that the overall death rate from all causes is massively up in New York and these other states where you have these large outbreaks, and yet you don't have deaths from car accidents. I mean, nobody's driving. You don't have deaths from, from you know, many workplace deaths. You know, It's a major source of injury and death. Those aren't happening. I mean, it's like they're literally trying to say the sky is not blue anymore. It's green. And, you know, and and the the grass is not green anymore. It's blue. And what you've been seeing is backwards. And this, you know, this is going to help out Trump somehow to have James O'Keefe out there saying, oh, they're lying about how many people are dying from covid. At the same time that all the experts and the main, main media and actual scientists and the Centers for Disease Control itself, these are CDD, CDC statistics. The CDC that has uh, repaired their website not to show the first cases, the early cases of COVID in the United States. I mean, it's bizarre what the CDC has done on their website. You know, when you try to look at previous data, but that CDC is saying, yeah, you know, you've got more deaths that, you, you know, that, that probably should be attributable to COVID. We can't find another explanation for it. And the states are going back and looking at this. I mean, how did Americans dying become partisan? How'd that happen? Oh, yeah, that's right. That Republican president was completely incompetent and didn't pay any attention to the scientists and the warnings from the CIA and the Pentagon and everybody else back in November that this thing was coming. That's how it became partisan. Trump is starting to get frantic that he's not going to get reelected and, uh, you know, oh, let's blame China. Let's blame Obama. Let's say that they're lying about the numbers. This is Sylvia Albert, the director of voting and elections with Common Cause, commoncause.org, the website, the Twitter handle also at Common Cause. Sylvia, welcome to the program. I believe you guys held a, a webinar over the weekend. What's the current state of voting by mail? Where is this going and what are we anticipating for the
0: election this fall? Well, what I've seen over the past few years is that voting by mail is a completely safe and secure way to vote. More than a quarter of Americans voted that way in 2018. And so in the midst of a global pandemic, we absolutely believe that um, increasing vote by mail is the way to ensure that Americans can stay safe, you know, be concerned about their health and still exercise the fundamental right to vote.
2: I didn't realize it was a quarter. I mean, I live in Oregon, so I'm really familiar with how it works. But what are the, you know, we're hearing from the president and, uh, in fact, I got an email the day before yesterday from... FreedomWorks, you know, the, the group that the Kochs started back in the day that led the Tea Party movement in 2010, saying that this vote by mail thing was a scam that Nancy Pelosi and Tom Hanks and Hollywood liberals were putting together to help steal the election for the Democrats. Is that being believed? I mean, and what states are working toward? I understand Ohio, I believe the entire election was done by mail. Do I have all that right?
0: so ohio primarily is in person voting is for persons with disabilities or persons who don't have an address and in addition if you did not receive your absentee ballot in the mail for various reasons in ohio you can go to the board of elections and vote in person
2: right but that would be a provisional ballot so it may not be counted right yes right yeah that's that's a problem I, i know that. Yeah, Greg Pallas has reported that in uh, the election of 2016, there were uh, hundreds of thousands of people, and I believe it was in Ohio, I may be wrong, it might have been another state, who had signed up for absentee ballots and literally never received them or didn't receive them in time to vote them properly, and they were almost all in African-American neighborhoods. Are we seeing those kinds of patterns repeating?
0: Well, from the numbers released in Ohio, 2 million absentee ballots went out and about 1.5 million have been returned. So that means there are half a million people whose ballots have not been turned in. We don't know why that could mean they never got it. That could mean it's in the mail somewhere, but it just highlights that we need to have processes in place to deal with all eventualities and all possible outcomes and Mm -hmm. having an in safe in-person option for people if their ballot doesn't get there or, or if there's some problem is important to ensuring that we protect the right to vote.
2: Right. Was it Common Cause who sponsored a webinar on this issue?
0: Yes. We sponsored yeah. a
2: bunch. Okay. So I'm sorry I missed that. I, I actually signed up for it, but then you know some things happened here that required my attention and I was not able to attend. What did I miss? What was presented and what might have been learned from that? What might I have learned had I shown up?
0: Well, what she would have learned is, as I said, that vote by mail is not a new idea. It's been tried and tested in states across the country. There is no evidence that it benefits one party over the other. In fact, a new study came out of Stanford this week that reiterated that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's an electoral strategy used by both parties. And just like anything else, you know, if you get out the vote, your voters show up. And sometimes they show up by voting by mail, and sometimes they show up by voting in person. So I think that's an important point to make. You also would have learned that there's no evidence that it's less secure than voting in person. It's a paper-based system that's not susceptible to hacking, and it can be easily audited to make sure the results are accurate. So that's a great solution. And I think you'd also learn that there are a lot of misconceptions about vote by mail. There actually is ballot tracking and security provisions in place. I think there's this, this idea that we throw ballots out there and then anybody who wants one kind of like the you know evil cartoon mm-hmm. tiptoeing in can grab it, vote it, and send it back. But that's not actually the case, right? Ballots are tracked. They are sent to a particular person. That person's identity is verified. There are ballot drop stations around, you know, as, as I'm sure where you live there are. They are watched by cameras. They are in secure locations. They're in board of boards of elections, you know. So there is a security process in place behind it. And vote by mail is really key in protecting Americans' health and their right to vote this year.
2: Right. I would assume that in those states where Republican secretaries of state are aggressively purging the voter rolls like Brian Kemp did, you know, throwing a half million people off the voting rolls in the two years prior to his going up against Stacey Abrams and then researchers coming in and identifying 3 over 300,000 of those people actually never moved or anything they just happened to have mostly black or hispanic or asian last names that that kind of voter suppression equally hits people who are voting by mail as it does people who show up in person. That is, they just never get a ballot in the mail. You know, I know the Democrats are concerned about this and the Republicans are aggressively trying to promote this. And I'm guessing, Common Cause. you know, you're not a partisan organization. Um, But it seems to me like those are just the facts on the ground. What is being done about these kinds of voter suppression efforts?
0: Well, what we are seeing is Legislatures and executives around the country taking positive actions, regardless of you know being Republican or Democrat, regardless of the rhetoric that the president is using, Republican governors and states have moved to expand vote by mail and to ensure that all communities have access to the ballot. And as advocates, what we are there to do is ensure that when vote by mail is expanded, that there are safeguards in place for all those people that you're discussing who don't get mail or it got lost in the mail or their dog ate it or for whatever reason, or if this is a brand new system and, you know, people don't know how to use it. So even as states move to expand, we want to make sure they're doing it in a way that doesn't disenfranchise. And as you pointed out, there are certain communities that just tend to be disenfranchised more by voter suppression efforts. Um, And a new report from ACLU in Florida, again, highlighted that absentee ballots, more persons of color absentee ballots are rejected than Mm. non-persons of color. So we're all absolutely keeping an eye on that.
2: Great. Sylvia Albert with Common
1: Cause, Common Cause Day. Thank you, Sylvia. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Harmon Book Club is called Let the People Pick the President, The Case for Abolishing the Electoral College by
2: Jesse Wegman. And I'm reading from the introduction. This is uh, page 20. But what exactly can we do about the Electoral College? People have been trying to answer that question for more than two centuries. Since the first proposed amendment to the Electoral College was introduced in Congress in 1797, there have been more than 700 attempts to reform or abolish it more by far than any other provision of the Constitution. Only one has succeeded, the 12th Amendment, which was ratified in 1804 to fix a technical flaw in the college's design, but left it otherwise intact. In the late 1960s, an amendment abolishing the college and replacing it with a national popular vote passed the House of Representatives and came extraordinarily close in the Senate, but was blocked by a filibuster. At the time, 80% of the American public supported switching to the popular vote, as did President Richard Nixon and other top Republicans and Democrats. To sum this litany of failure speaks to itself. I think it's a waste of time to talk about changing the Electoral College, former President Jimmy Carter said in 2000. Carter had supported a national popular vote in the 60s and the 70s. I would predict that 200 years from now we'll still have the Electoral College, he said. Was President Carter right? is it simply our fate as americans to remain trapped by the historical quirks of a constitution that is too easy to revere and too hard to change especially after the failed effort in the 60s when american politics were far less polarized today and there was no simple partisan divide over the issue it's clear that a constitutional amendment is not in the cards but there may be another way it's called the national popular vote interstate compact an agreement among states to award all of their electors to the winner of the national popular vote, rather than the winner of their statewide vote. The compact will take effect when it is joined by states representing a majority of electoral votes, 270, thus guaranteeing that the candidate who wins the most votes in the country becomes president. The ingenuity of the compact is that it doesn't touch the Constitution. Its target is the statewide winner-take-all rule, currently in use in 48 states, Maine and Nebraska are the exceptions, this rule is what makes presidents out of popular vote losers. It incentivizes presidential campaigns to ignore more than 100 million American voters living in non-competitive states, turning what should be a national electoral contest into a series of bitter hyper-local brawls. It focuses nearly all campaign spending and policy proposals on a few so-called battleground states, where even a small shift in voting can lead to an electoral jackpot for one side or another. That familiar red and blue map we all obsess over every four years, it's nothing but a visual representation of state winner-take-all rules, with each state stamped Democratic or Republican as though that is its true identity, regardless of how many voters from the other party cast a ballot there. This is bad for democracy, and it should concern all Americans, no matter where they live or which political party they support. In contrast, when candidates know that all votes are equal, and they need a majority of them to win... They're forced to seek the support of all Americans and craft policies that appeal to as many people as possible. The Popular Vote Compact was launched in 2006 and got its first member state, Maryland, the following year. As of October 2019, 15 states in the District of Columbia, together representing 196 electoral votes, had joined. 74 more, and the compact takes effect. So far, only Democratic-majority states have joined the compact. And while the 2016 election dealt a significant setback to efforts to enlist Republican-led states, lawmakers of both parties around the country continue to support it, and Republican-led chambers have passed it in four states. Critics of the compact call it an end run around the Constitution, and it's true that the Constitution's framers never mentioned something like a popular vote compact. They also never mentioned the winner-take-all rule, but that didn't stop the majority of states from rapidly adopting it to benefit themselves. That's the whole point of the compact. The framers gave states near total control over how to allocate their electors. The fact that the compact is an agreement among states also means that, unlike a constitutional amendment, which is effectively permanent, member states may back out if they later decide they don't want to be a part of it. Opponents of the popular vote argue that no matter how you might achieve it, it's not the way our country is built. As the popular saying goes, we're a republic, not a democracy. The Electoral College is one of the core Republican elements of the Framers' constitutional design, like the Senate and the Supreme Court, which are there precisely to prevent majorities from running rampant. In other words, majority rule is not our only organizing principle, and perhaps not even our most important. There are two problems, however, with this argument. The minor one is on the surface and involves terminology. The United States is both a republic and a representative democracy. The two terms describe the same thing, a government in which the people hold the ultimate power, but elect representatives to make laws, policies, and other decisions on their behalf. The founders used the term republic to distinguish what they were building from a monarchy. For them, democracy generally referred to the direct variety as in ancient Athens or the New England town meeting, where the people literally make the laws themselves. But American politics at the national level has never been and never will be a direct democracy. So any distinction between the terms today is meaningless. As one political columnist put it, to say that the U.S. is a republic and not a democracy is like claiming to eat beef and pork, but not cows and pigs. The bigger problem with the saying is the implication that lies beneath it. The book, Let the People Pick the President, by Jesse Wegman.
1: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.